You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thank you, Dora. Thank you, Claire, Estelle, and the team who've, who've done such a great job of organising this. Um, I will say, for those of you who are interested in, in med- the study of medieval manuscripts for information about the Middle Ages, do feel free to have a little nap in the next 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> I'm really going to talk about um, modern, modern tools and metadata, which I know is not everybody's cup of tea, so apologies for that. Um, one of my long-running research interests has been how encounters between people and manuscripts result in changes to both the people and the books involved. And these are documented in various ways, through written descriptions of manuscripts in collections or sales catalogues, um, or less formally in notes, letters, or diaries, and through alterations to the manuscripts themselves, which can involve the removal of leaves or parts of leaves, and as we've already seen this morning, the addition of notes of many different kinds. Most recently, developments in digital technology have facilitated the digitization of manuscripts, which is why we're all here, which is another record of encounters between usually a team of people, and we've seen a lot of of the people involved in this project, and a book. And although this technology is new, it builds on over a century of documenting manuscripts through photography, and usually, though not always, um, upon a longer tradition of cataloguing in order to make the images findable and to tell us a bit more about them, to capture something about the state of of knowledge. My current research, as Laura said, concentrates on manuscripts described in the first half of the 20th century in the context of the rare book trade. But in the course of that work, I've been thinking about the legacies of these accounts and the extent to which they have often been uncritically replicated in the digital age as part of our rush to get um, information online and this is this is reasonable it's practical we have existing information we don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel every time but that means that we replicate the interests biases and perspectives of those who wrote about them in a very different historical context now most of the manuscripts in Trinity's collection, including the one that I'm going to focus on here, have been in the college since the 17th century, where they've received varied levels of attention. And about a decade ago, Helen Comrade O'Brien and I began a project to look at some of the Psalters, including uh, manuscript 93, a Psalter and hymnal made in England in the second half of the 15th century. This book was catalogued Uh, minimally, this is the whole entry, by T.K. Abbott in 1900, and Neve already talked about him, and more extensively by Kolka in 1991, whose account seems to underpin the abstract in the record that accompanies the new digitisation, which goes a lot further than this, particularly in describing the textual content, which was really what Kolka was, was most interested in. As a result of digitisation efforts, images and written descriptions of manuscripts are more easily accessible than ever before. However, 
over 20 years into major digitization projects, it's clear that because many institutions have built their own infrastructure, information risks becoming siloed. We've got a lot of projects that are doing the same kind of thing, but are building the, their own things from, from scratch. There have been various efforts to, to try and um, counter this and make information compatible, but recently co librarians, computer scientists and humanities scholars have begun working together to explore how linked open data might help us understand manuscripts on a global scale. And my involvement with this has been working with a group interested in manuscript provenance, um, and we call ourselves the Name Authority Working Group, or NORG, which is a terrible acronym which we really <laughs> need to get rid of, but you know, the emphasis is on the working really rather than anything else. Um, and I'm very grateful to the other participants for uh, shaping some of the thoughts that I'm going to present here. And among our aims are to make it easier to find information about individuals associated with pre-modern books. And what I thought I would do in this paper is take Manuscript 93, which you've um, got the facsimile of there, as a case study for how this might work. And the potential in my title is really important because as you will see at the moment, all this is in its infancy. But I hope that it raises some interesting questions about both the advantages and limitations of our current uses of technology and prompts us to think critically about what we're doing with data and how we're doing it. So for those of you who don't know this manuscript, in the digital facsimile, as in the manuscript itself um, of Manuscript 93, we find evidence for many owners and users. And I think we've come to take this for granted, but it's worth noting that one of the great things about the choices made when, when the team came to digitise this manuscript is that they digitised all of it, including the binding, the fly leaves. Now, if you go back 20 years, lots of digitisation projects didn't bother with any of that material and so lost it. So it's great. So it gives us a lot of evidence to work with. Um, we're looking at the frontispiece of the manuscript here, and in the lower border, you've got um, the coat of arms for the person or people for whom the book was made. Um, and what you're looking at there is um, a page that has been partially uh, messed with and had probably an image of the Trinity cut out at some point, so you can see through then to the flyleaf beyond, which has a later text added to it. Sticking with the shield, though, in the shield on the left, you've got um, the arms with, I hope you can see, three pairs of wings sort of flying up there, which is the arms of John Wingfield. And on the left are the arms of his, uh, sorry, on the right are the arms of his wife, uh, Elizabeth Fitz Lewis. And this heraldry appears in two versions of a painting celebrating this 15th century couple and their 16 children who survived to adulthood. And it's possible, yeah, a lot of, lot of kids. Um, it's possible that the manuscript was made to celebrate their marriage. We don't know exactly when that took place. You will find conflicting dates uh, if you go searching for it, but it's probably in the early 1450s. Um, so that provides the earliest date at which this coat of arms could have been put into this manuscript, but it could have been added at any point after that. But we're probably looking at a book made for the Wingfields in the 
1450s or certainly the second half of the 15th century. At the other extreme, if we turned back a page, um, the recto of that folio, so that's the same whole theme from the other side, gives us some other bits of information. So in the top um, right corner, you've got the early college catalogue number, C115, um, from which tallies with a catalogue made around 1670. And then you've also got James Usher's number, which is this, which hopefully you can just about see. Um, so, again, another 17th century numbering system. Now, assuming that the book was not annotated once it came into the college's excellent care and nobody was allowed to write on it, um, I think that's plausible, actually, in, in this case. That means that all the other names in the book have to be dated between 1450 and 17, uh, 1670. So that gives us kind of a nice tight range. In addition to that, some of the other names are accompanied by dates. So on the same page, we have this date 1574, which seems to be related to a whole load of medical recipes that are attributed to um, Mary St. Ledger. And then you can hopefully see we have a name that is usually read as John Stanley here, which comes with the date uh, 1611 written into the line above it. So we've got a few other uh, names and dates of that period. At the other end of the volume, there are more of these medical texts attributed to, to Mary St. Ledger and some other names uh, which are fairly difficult to, to interpret, but um, just be aware that they are there and there is certainly more to be done on those. Um, I'm going to concentrate, however, on these names in the middle of the manuscript where we find um, several reliefs have been removed here and altered presumably around the time of the Reformation and we've got the names Thomas Ravenscroft, George Ravenscroft and Sidney and um, possibly Leonardus or something like that. Now the name Thomas Ravenscroft appears three times in at least two inks and it appears again on the following folio where it is accompanied by the note Amata Studiorum. So this could be one individual who wrote his name a lot of times in this book, really liked writing his name, was maybe figuring out what he wanted his signature to look like, or it could be several members of the same family who all had the same name. Um, we'll come back to that, but it could be generations of a Ravenscroft family for whom it was tradition that you all signed this book. Who knows? What we can say, however, is that all these people, you know, they may not have all owned this book, but they all had either significant, uh, sufficient access to write in it or have their names written in it or enough celebrity to be worth recording by whoever it was that did own this book. So using the information provided by the digital facsimile, I created a record for it in the Schoenberg database of manuscripts run by the University of Pennsylvania libraries with a link to the facsimile. Now, I couldn't get the uh, whole entry onto the one slide, so there's the, the second half of it. That's what it looks like if you go and look at it. 
The database was begun by the collector Larry Schoenberg to track manuscript provenance, but it's become a crowdsourced resource that captures and links observations of manuscripts in a wide range of sources. And in its current iteration, the database aims to record claims that have been made by, about manuscripts by different authors at different points in time without attempting to correct or standardise the data. I also went and created a record for Kolker's catalogue entry and then linked those two together to create a manuscript record for this book. The database can be exploited in a range of ways. Having done this, I could now search for other records of manuscripts with similar dimensions or textual content. But for the purposes of this exercise where I'm interested in names, one of the benefits of the, um, this database is that it has a name authority file. And that means that uh, in addition to having the potential to capture how a name is recorded, the fact that these bits are in blue, which you probably can't see, um, <coughs> means that if I click on them, I get taken to the name record. So if I click on Trinity College Dublin Library, it takes me to a name record which, from which I can then access all the other things that have been linked to Trinity College Dublin Library. Um, so you can see here, with a standardised version of the name, you can see here that the library appears in the database twice as an agent, twice as a buyer, and 64 times in provenance. So there's a lot of work still to do. It's far from complete, uh, but it has some data there about some manuscripts associated with this collection. In addition, the, um, for those of you interested in, those, in these sorts of things, the name has a VIAF ID for the Virtual International Authority file, and um, which is designed to help reconcile different versions of the same name that might occur in different databases. Now, unfortunately, most of the other names that appear in this manuscript um, don't have any other matches. They are only linked to the records that I have created. So the next step is to export this data into Wikidata as a platform that allows for the reconciliation of data from all sorts of different sources. And it has various strengths that we can talk about if you're interested. Now, one of the sources, if we follow the trail of John Wingfield, one of the sources used in Wikidata is the British peerage. So it's not surprising to find an entry for John Wingfield already there. And Wikidata gives us the revelatory information that he is a male human, but also <laughs> gives us dates of birth and death including a link to the Find a Grave database that tells us that he's buried in Suffolk, and it gives us a lot of genealogical data. And his wife's record gives us a similar thing. Now, while these are not particularly enlightening, the record for one of the sons does hint at the potential for using Wikidata as a platform. Um, so, uh, Richard, Richard Wingfield, also has a Schoenberg identifier. If we looked at the identifiers that are associated with Richard in this in Wikidata, we'd find that he also has a Schoenberg identifier because he's identified as the owner 
of the Wingfield Salter Hours now in New York Public Library. And in addition to uh, genealogical sources, he's also got, among other things, an Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, and he appears in various other catalogues. He also, really intriguingly, um, is linked to this project that somebody's done, Six Degrees of Francis Bacon. Um, so, don't know anything about this, but it gives you an indication not only of what is known about somebody in other databases, but also what else is going on, who else is interested in these things. And it's the starting point for being able to link things in different directions. Um, there's uh, Richard's book, the challenge here is that the only thing we know about Richard is from the name on the binding. And one of the risks with, with linked data is that we start creating certainties where earlier scholarship had had doubt and nuance. So um, confirmation bias is a terrible thing, and we can, we can talk about that later if you're interested. But it, it gives us a starting point for explanation without removing the need for really careful, critical humanities scholarship. All right, very quickly, um, the case of the Ravenscrofts is kind of similarly intriguing and frustrating. In 1621, as um, some of you will know, Thomas, uh, Thomas Ravenscroft published this, the whole book of Psalms with hymns. And we, here, you have his name in a Psalter and hymnal. So intriguing. But... There are very conflicting accounts of Ravenscroft's biography in existing sources. And when I looked at this 10 years ago, I really wasn't sure that we had the same person. Uh, since then, uh, Ross Duffin has pointed to the fact that we have some signatures for Ravenscroft in other manuscripts, which including one in the British Library. So I thought, brilliant, I'll just go look at that. Uh, no, you won't. Um, so just putting this up as a, result, as a reminder that now, digital records can be fragile, um, and please take very good care of them. But before, um, thankfully, uh, Duffin had published these, so we can compare them. And I don't think the evidence is particularly strong, although we can also argue about you know, whether there are such things as consistent fixed signatures in this e era. But before we abandon this possibility, um, Duffin's work, combined with the material accessible through Wikidata, does open up an intriguing possible set of relationships. One of the musical Thomas Ravenscroft's work is dedicated to Sir John Edgerton, whose mother was an Elizabeth Ravenscroft. She was the daughter of a Thomas Ravenscroft, the sister of a George Ravenscroft, the aunt of a Thomas Ravenscroft, and the granddaughter of a George Ravenscroft. So... We've got all those same names in at the book here. So again, while trying to resist the temptation of confirmation bias, the circumstantial evidence remains suggestive and, again, gives us a starting point for thinking about things that go beyond a single collection or even you know, a single branch of traditional manuscript studies. So the case of, of Manuscript 93 is, I think, representative of the current state of metadata for manuscript research. Large quantities of data are being made available with projects by projects with different aims, interests, and approaches. They are being reused, sometimes unexpectedly. If you build it, sometimes people will come along and use it um, for all sorts of different ways. 
Some of these sources, however, you know, are giving us a very distorted picture. You know, a lot of them are what we might think of as very conservative sources. The peerage is giving a disproportionate amount of weight to rich, white, dead men. Um, and we need to find ways to, to try and think about how we balance that. But linked data has huge potential to take us beyond individual collections, traditional lines of thought, and to find relationships between books that are very widely dispersed. So together with digitalization, it enables us to see pre-modern books in ways that their makers and users never could, and to explore questions that even a generation ago would have been impossible. And there I will stop. Thank you. Thank you.